0: Word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That, dear listeners, would be through part one, or chapter eleven, of Lightbringer by Pierce Brown.
1: This is Cross, and I am p j and we are words and whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club Crossland. we have said the same pattern
0: hundred seventy times was it something like that this and is... I feel like we should just like automate it at this point like we, we can we can probably do it. In,
1: A variety of ways by piecing together all of the. (laughs) But I mean, here's here's the fun thing is that you sometimes say weird stuff and I sometimes (laughs) say weird stuff and we say it weird ways and we do it differently. And also we changed this pattern because it was different for, I think, through Morningstar Mm. or Golden Sun. So it isn't. 171 episodes now but it is probably somewhere in the realm of like 150 (laughs) like 140 to 150 i I mean enough that i totally
0: said that with while scrolling it's just off the top of my head now which is cool but i still think i'm gonna get it wrong so i like Mm -hmm. panic scrolled all the way up the document to try to find it and i was done by the time i got there
1: I totally understand. Yeah, I. It's crazy how I remember it just kind of off the dome. It, it, it happened when I recorded that one episode with Hallerpod, in which we also had our. We did. We released the same episode, the sort of Hallercon debrief, and that was a that was a great little episode. But I didn't have my computer in front of me or anything like that, and I went, "Oh yeah, no, I know both of these intros. <laughs> I can just do that off the dome." So mm-hmm. yeah. Perfect. It's funny. Mm -hmm. But today is our second episode, and we'll be talking about chapters 7 through 11 of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer, wrapping up part one, Circus. But before we do that, let's talk about our featured alcohol, (laughs) because I don't think (laughs) either of us made a cocktail.
0: (laughs) No, I got done with work as I was jumping on the recording today, so... Didn't have time to make a cocktail. So instead I went to the bottle that my friends and cast members, I guess, co-cast members Mm -hmm. of Catacomb Party's The Tales of Kana for my birthday bought me a bottle of barrel distilling. The 16-year aged finished in, in rum barrels rye. And it is so fucking good. So I just have a neat pour of that. And actually, I had... If you hadn't called us both out for not having a cocktail, I had a reasoning for that. And that reasoning is, at the end of this section, Darrow and Cassius have a heartfelt conversation on a ship. And the last time that happened, they shared whiskey. So... There's no actual the, drinking within this section. Oh, there's wine. There's there's wine in the Lysander chapters, but this felt more
1: connective. And Cassius's bottle of whiskey is taken away from him, which is mm. a funny little bit as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So, yeah. Good
0: Following call. That That's up. a... Sorry. It's a great whiskey. It is. It, it's so
1: good. I'm excited for you to try it when you come here again. <laughs> I will be there in like two weeks just Mm -hmm. to hold on to enough for me to try it.
0: I think I'm going (laughs) to – I'm I'm not going to drink it very often. I'm going to save it for as long as I can. But I am going to bring a vial of it, I think, or like a hip flask of it to the wedding for Mm. us to share. But I've got a triple IPA from – Lupulin Brewing Company out of Big Lake, Minnesota, called Not Bad for a Strip Club Brewery or Strip Mall Brewery. Not Strip Club Brewery. (laughs) Oh, my God. That'd be (laughs) different. Not Bad for a Strip Mall Brewery. Mm -hmm. It's their eight-year anniversary beer. Triple IPA. Just fucking bananas. Like It's just bonkers how strong this is. But true to their form, very well balanced. There's as you get in any triple IPA, a very, very heavy sweetness to it. They do a stellar job of blending in the hops. It's it's super punchy, but not bitter. And because I've had enough triple IPAs, I can tell, and like high strength beers, I can tell, but it masks its strength very well. Hmm. So if you want to... Get surprised at how fucked up you get on two beers. Like, drink <laughs> drink two of these. They're like, I think it's 10.5% or something. Let's see. I know it's, yeah, 10%. So, that's fun. What about you? What are you sipping on tonight, Crossland? We just discussed in the Devil's Cut that you are uh, sorely out of liquor. So
1: I am, I am, and I haven't replenished because time and everything else. But I am at present having... An Elysian Space Dust, which is fine. It's an eight point two percent beer, so it's always it's a solid, strong drinker. I really, genuinely
0: um, didn't realize it was that
2: high.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a fine beer, and I mean it's commercially available everywhere. It's nothing to write home about by any stretch, but it's also you know I obviously got it because it's a good beer. Yeah, you know I wouldn't buy shit intentionally. But yeah, I dig it. It's easy. So I'm gonna have two of those over the course of the episode, and that's the plan. Perfect.
0: Along with your Beyond yeah, that, I have
1: my usual green tea and water. You know? Oh, water. Lame, lame cocktail day, but you know, all told sometimes sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. So here we are. Mm-hmm. But before we talk about the chapters, before we go any further, PJ, how did you feel about this week's reading? What'd you think?
0: If last week felt like a um, an odd embrace back into the universe. This felt like a fucking mm-hmm. whirlwind. Um, it's like shoving your hand down the garbage disposal and saying yes, more <laughs> kind please. Kind of is. There was a lot <laughs> going on, and nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are obviously the battle scenes and the action pack sequences, and the the executions and. <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> But it's not like the the in-depth battle sequences that we've come to know from Dark Age, but it still feels so intense. <laughs> yeah,
1: Hard these dirt. are all, I would say, almost like independent, quick flash in the pans by by most accounts compared to the like grandiose battle section of the La Dawn where, you know, it's 180 pages. It's three episodes of our podcast and it's just like boom, 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 boom unrelenting. But this was unrelenting, I think, in a different emotional way, even from the beginning of the Lysander chapter all mm. the way until the end. Yeah. Who, dog, who, dog. Well, this also wraps up part one. So maybe we'll talk about that at the very end of the episode, just kind of talk about what you thought about part one on the whole. But I'm very excited. So I kind of just want to get into it here. I know that we've only got five chapters, but they're kind of beefy in, in a way that I didn't expect until I went through and started doing the notes. And I went... Oh, this will be a quick and easy episode. And I was like, eight pages on the document later, and I was like, oh god, no, in the no. fucking coffin
0: every single time. This will be a quick yeah. easy
1: episode. Like there, there are no quick yeah. easy episodes in this series. <laughs> I don't think we've ever had one. Never, <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> no, because there's always something going on. Mm-hmm. All right, with that, we'll get into the chapters here. Let's talk about Chapter Seven: Lysander, the Ally Idiot little summary here Lysander walks around talks to a bunch of his friends witnesses a play and is otherwise made a fool of by every other person that he talks to over the course of an afternoon (laughs) there's a like serious like sincere sense of
0: why aren't these people taking me as seriously as I take myself from Lysander throughout this chapter and it's kind of delicious to a certain degree but Mm -hmm. like he he I'll get into into it in more detail later, but as a sort of button on that summary, I feel like that's...
1: Yeah. I was writing my summaries this week. Not all of them are jokes, but at the very least, the two Lysander ones are kind of jokes. <laughs> <laughs> as I was writing them, I was just like, well yeah (laughs) just because they're you know there's there's a lot with lysander and i love i love the character and everything like that but there's a lot of just like political i love the character crossland says of lysander get him yeah (laughs) get get me on the internet come at me i'll block you so fast (laughs) you won't even know you won't even know what platform i'm blocking you on (laughs) just kidding i wouldn't do that But this, I I really like the chapter title in particular, and I think that Pierce does a very, very wonderful job. You know, I kind of made a joke of it, but like every other person thinks Lysander is the fool. But really, the constant question that's being asked here through every single interaction is who really is the ally idiot that we're talking about here? We move from conversation to conversation, from person to person, and it does truly change every time as we move who Mm -hmm. the idiot is in the conversation.
0: Yeah, and I mean the – so <laughs> my response to that in the notes was if you're at a card table and can't figure out who the sucker is, you're the sucker. Like it, oh, no. it, It's probably not unreasonable that almost every single person that's interacting with Lysander today is thinking that he's being taken, taken a fool and uh, is on this folliest – journey to launch the the ruins of the morning star like people don't people aren't taking him seriously everybody knows that he's in the dark about the the convention on earth like he he's proving that he is not as powerful or in control as he is making himself out to be in their eyes But at the same time, everybody's fucking up left and right, you know, like everybody's getting caught in in logistical or sort of chess movie traps to a certain degree.
1: Yeah. And that is definitely kind of the case for the whole chapter. It is. I mean, we'll, we'll obviously talk about some of the more specific examples as we get to them, but it is. I think, very clever on Pierce's part to show that, okay, so Lysander is the idiot here, okay, Cicero is the idiot here, okay, Glorostes is holding out here, okay, Helios thinks that Lysander is the ally idiot for sure, but... <laughs> Di- like Lysander kind of like respectfully or begrudgingly thinks of Diomedes as this like honorable man but he's kind of the ally idiot in a way because he won't break from Helios and they're like all of the and then he gets Atlas and Atlas thinks both of them are idiots basically and is just kind of tolerating the presence of everyone <laughs> And like the- all of those examples I-, I don't know I just think it's flush I think it's a cleverly named chapter and mm-hmm. it makes you constantly contemplate you know who the sucker is in the scene Atlas isn't wrong <laughs>
2: to be in no. my, my view.
1: <laughs> oh, God. We're, we're going to have such conversations about Atlas at the end of this. But yeah, fuck, fuck, man. So an obvious initial clarification to start off with. Clearly, Lysander wasn't fully in on it last week when he jumped into the stands. Um, it just seemed like he was or he played it off as such. And so that felt like the correct kind of stance to take in the immediate moment with you there. Uh, But he still orchestrated and responded to Cicero, you know, perfectly, uh, including kind of knowing and understanding that he was likely to be breaking his orders as well. That said, if we hop back to the plot here, Cicero has this incredible line that I think points to Lysander believing Cicero to be the ally idiot, but he swiftly turns it around on Lysander, which I just think is great. And he says, what concerns are there but honor? What is there to lose but life? You ask me to risk my life for you, your claim on the morning chair, when all know the odds against that. This is by far the safer sport. You and my sister do not understand because the insides of your minds are ordered like the guts of a clock. My mind is a wandering, haphazard organ, but it is not without its own breed of order. I love this response. Obviously, it's hard
0: (laughs) by design to find huge argumentative flaws in any of these like peerless class golds I'm not I I, I don't know for sure that everyone that we're interacting with throughout this I is peerless but time. it's, it's yeah. fair to assume that most of these are at least high high society golds um, mm-hmm. but this feels like a masterful response to Lysander he's been so up his own ass Lately, he, he doesn't seem to want to suss out any sort of reasons for seemingly illogical or against the grain decision making. Or I, I keep wanting to go back to chess moves, but his game is—he's he, not seeing how other people are playing, or not not rationalizing other play styles.
1: Yeah, not at all. I mean, I I think that like a great comparison that even happens within this own chapter is that and in just Lysander's perspective in general so far in this book is sort of the frequent conversations that we're getting about honor around the people that were either around Lysander before through Cassius or the people who are around him now or the people that he's looking at and think are honorable. But he doesn't actually realize who is or who isn't, I think, in a true fashion. So that's why I love the line, what concerns are there but honor? Because that is sort of hearkening to something that you think Lysander would understand. But then he doesn't turn it around and like internalize that, like you're saying, to evaluate other people. People's chess moves or positions, or how they're thinking. And then later, he he refers to Diomedes as the most honorable man that he's ever known, and all of these other things, and all of these other go- claims of glory, and like the reason that he wants him to be his friend. And you just can't help but go, like, dude, Cicero, like, actually cares about you, and is honorable, and is fighting the good fight for you. Mm-hmm. And like, you're you're looking down on the horse that you have in your corner. Right. I don't know that that's the phrase. But yeah, we, we horse always put horses in our corners. <laughs> the boxer, the fighter in your corner, the coach in your corner. I don't know. It's we put probably we literally put, we else. put
0: boxers in stables and horses in corners. <laughs> oh no!
1: <laughs> Fuck.
0: But yeah. It, I mean, it keeps your enemies on your toes or on their toes, I suppose. I wouldn't want to box a horse. And I wouldn't want to ride a boxer, so I, th- <laughs> I think we're okay.
1: That's that's fair. I get it. Mm-hmm. Good call. <laughs> oh boy,
0: I was flying on on nothing on that
1: one. So I'm glad I kind of turned it Yeah. <laughs> i guess i guess the core of my point is i really like cicero i know lysander Mm. does too but he doesn't give him the attention that he warrants right you know as a as a friend i think yeah that that kind of stinks it does kind of stink yeah cicero also leaves us with a lovely little note mentioning gloroste's in the exchange you're kind but not gentle Artists are sensitive about their work, and you're his work of personal redemption. So I wanted to ask, between Lysander's reflection of Glorostes, as well as Lysander's discussion of Ajax, Cicero, and the rest of his sort of crowd that surrounds him, his community, where do you think Lysander's head is at with his allies in the moment? As far as I can really tell, Lysander
0: is someone who has spent considerable time trying to position himself in crowds that will bring his conquest to or his, his conquest for power to fruition. But throughout all of that, he's forgotten that he's not the jackal. He's not a fucking sociopath uh, as far as I can tell. And he's going to crave friendship and he's kind of conflating allyship and friendship in a personal way. And is hurt and confused and frustrated when they're not when those feelings aren't simpatico
1: i guess you know mhm yeah he's he's clearly he he clearly also wants to jump from group to group because he sees that as a way of of running up the power chain right like that's he he knows the path to power is ultimately hopping in between these circles and and sort of management, but management of friends. is not the same as investing in friends. Like that's not, it's like the applying Jack of all trades, master of none to
0: ally groups, (laughs) you know, like he's trying to maintain a deep friendship and allyship with way too many people for it to be effective in any of them.
1: Mm hmm. Right. And you're just looking for that one weak link in the chain. And well, truth be told, we do know that weak link by the end of this kind of at the end of this week. So, yeah, we can see that start to melt away. Mm hmm. Or slowly be eaten by a manticore. So speaking of, we then move to our conversation with Tharsis, of whom remarks that Cicero is a real Flavius Scorpius. So to get into a little bit of fun little history here, the Flavians are notable for being the dynasty of Rome that took over after the period of the four emperors, which was the year, I think it was, or was year 67 or 68? 1967. um, AD. Yeah, AD, <laughs> uh, but basically four emperors in the same year, and the final one was the beginning of the Flavinian dynasty, which I think lasted like a decade and a half or two decades, which is decent. It's a good I run. Mean, it took over for a period. Yeah, it's not bad, but they involved specifically rebuilding Rome and the Roman Empire in the massive way following the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, devastating the countryside, and obviously Pompeii and a couple of the other surrounding towns. They then like began a bunch of the road projects, but the biggest project that they started and built ultimately or were in the process of completing for a long time was the Colosseum in Rome. They were big pushes for the gladiators, and so the parallel here to call him Flavius Scorpus is, is very clearly hearkening to that. Do you think
0: they'll ever finish the Colosseum? I was there and it was only like
1: half done. (laughs) Yeah, it seemed kind of bad in the pictures I saw. It seems like they got a lot more work to do.
0: Yeah, they do have a lot more (laughs) work to do. Dude, that is such an astonishing feat. It's so cool. (laughs) But that I didn't know. I was kind of curious about it. To that end, I also don't understand Scorpus and its significance.
1: Way to ask the question. I had to do a little bit more research because you asked the question in the notes and I went, oh God, I don't know. And then <laughs> I did some did some searching. And it turns out that Flavius Scorpus was a, so specifically the a lot of gladiators at the time would take up, especially winning gladiators would take up the name of the emperor of the house name as a mm-hmm. name. And so... Flavius, but Scorpus in particular, Flavius Scorpus was a successful charioteer during the reign of the Flavinians, winning somewhere in the realm of like 2,300 charioteer races. So like the most winningest charioteer by a long shot and actually won his freedom. He was a slave like most gladiators are, which is also a comment that Lysander makes. How many chariot races are they hosting in ancient Rome? That's so many.
0: Yeah. And to win all of them, to win that <laughs> yeah. many, let's yeah. say he wins 80%. percent hmm I mean, let, let's just say he participate. all right, right, less than that. Let's say he participates in 3,000 chariot races.
1: Mm-hmm. That's one a day for like a decade. Oh, I'm assuming he's running way more than one a day. I... That's so many races.
0: <laughs> so many I mean,
1: But I guess even I, if they're short. Yeah, even by comparison, I mean, like Cicero is is running a couple today, like four or something like that. Because he's yeah. getting prepared to go back out, I think, within this conversation. They didn't have TV back then.
0: Like they just, just had races true. all the yeah. time, right? Like they <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> usually like, let's all right, weekly or daily, daily routine. It's four o'clock, time for or it's sun hits that three o'clock. Let's go to <laughs> <laughs> chariot races and have sea miles. I mean
2: but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh God. Uh they did measure time by the sun in the sky, I know, but I I, know, I understand. I know. That's funny. That's good. <laughs> but yeah. Just adds a little bit of flavor. It's a good call out. Good little good little bonus bit from Mr. Mm-hmm. Brown, of course. And Tharsis, you know, recalling his own sort of pompous education, the way that he talks, too. But speaking of, let's continue back to Tharsis. And man, this man's idiocy. He explains that Cassius and Darrow have been captured and with with the purchase of Sebra finally working as bait. Ultimately, this is all said inside of a jam field using a jam ring, of which we haven't seen used that frequently in the series when private conversations need to be held. It's great to see it back because you feel like it should be used more than it is. You would really think so. Different moments like these. You would really
0: think it'd be more common,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: like um, I would. I mean, I don't love a- any sort of instance where people can hear my conversations, innocuous or private or fine. I whatever. Like any conversation, I don't like people listening to me. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I would
1: just have that on perpetually. I think <laughs> probably. Yeah, I I can imagine. Which, I mean, it's it's good. But yeah, what drives me or rather Lysander up the wall, what drives Lysander up the wall isn't so much the success of the gambit, but that Cassius man, he considers his brother of 10 years was better when he suffered that noble death. Yes, I said the goddamn word. <laughs> this is
0: something Ruined that we script. haven't paid off in so many books.
1: Ah, there's the drink folks, <laughs> but we are drinking for the <laughs> word gambit. Sorry. I think the last time, I probably said it was Mistborn. Mm, I don't know if it like was even that one. Like, I feel like you were pretty in tune with not saying it in, like, Iron Gold. I definitely said it a lot in Dark Age, but... Did you? Okay. I think it was Iron Gold that it really became a thing. Anyway. That could be. Anyway.
2: Yeah.
0: Doesn't matter. I feel like Lysander's frustrations with Cassius here aren't as... Like... I feel like they're a mask over his frustrations towards him joining Darrow yet again. But it does point to that old, really like long-held ideal of honor and nobility that's so deeply rooted in his sense of morality, despite <laughs> the fact that it's fairly easy for him to excuse the lapses in his own nobility and honor. I think it's a I, I think it's a defense mechanism, and I think he's hurt by the fact that Cassius, at least seemingly, I want to think sincerely, has rejoined that goddamned Reaper of Mars and their conquest against the the society.
1: Yeah, I mean it's tough to I can imagine the frustration of Lysander in this moment. But at the same time, shouldn't that be a moment of reflection? Shouldn't that be a moment where, like, your mentor and also a man you looked up to? And also, I forget if it's in this chapter or if it's in 11, but he talks about horses. I think it's this chapter at the very beginning because he's going to the stable to see Cicero. He talks about horses and remembering Virginia fondly and the way that she would calm herself down by going for a horse ride and that he hopes that she's doing okay. It's like... Mm-hmm. Dude, <laughs> can, you, can you wrestle with a thought that doesn't immediately contradict itself within 10 minutes?
0: Yeah, I mean, what would that do to his campaign? Like, I, I think he needs to be
1: cold and. He's having the right reaction. I don't, mm. I don't disagree on that front by any stretch. And yeah, he does need to be cold. He needs to be exactly what you're saying, if that is what he really wants. And I guess this is sort of this is the beginning seeds of that confirmation of, yeah, I'm walking down this path that pits me against the people that I looked up to and love.
0: Yeah, and I, I really don't think it matters what he really wants anymore. He started mm. down this path and any deviation will be seen as weakness
1: and will invalidate his 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 campaign yeah and also he fucking murdered alexander by shooting him in the face so as though he's going to get any forgiveness from darrow (laughs) or any of the arcoses no yeah no who who boy we then turn to the night in Heliopolis, where we see Lysander spending time in the theater watching a rendition of Oedipus acted by an aged Thessian, an actor from Earth. We then meet, not for the first time, Helios and Diomedes. Both are interesting in their own right as far as conversations go, and I'd love to chat kind of about their discussion of honor and lying about different things. But I, before we get there, I want to mention the razor binds of Zeus and sort of the quote that accompanies it. Real quick. So wrapped around his upper arm, of which I believe is something that Asserted. didn't. Yeah, Darrow started, but also didn't Arcos call really dumb? Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. It was it was a brash, avant-garde fashion statement. and And it, it was a statement that that class of the Institute kind of heralded as their sort of mark on gold society, I feel like. But it's cool to see that it's permeated so much of it, even beyond what's
1: happened with the rising. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I wanted to double check because I was like, "Wait a minute, did he actually?" Darrow started um, it. No, Darrow did start it for sure. I don't, I don't disagree with that. I was thinking that I didn't know if he actually put it on. I his thought it was arm. on his forearm. So to read it here, and this isn't perfectly clear. So this is a good thing to rule, read. Helios shakes my hand. He is sheathed in an antiquated cestus. His his is sheathed in an antiquated cestus, a battle glove composed of interwoven golden bands that ensnare the user's arm from elbow to the tips of the fingers. That gives the wearer mastery over his warship. War scenes and the word dust maker are etched into the metal, along with a line from the Iliad. I too shall lie in dust when I am dead, but now let me win noble renown. This particular Cestus is named Ban- the Binds of Zeus.
0: Okay, so this isn't his razor. This is a
1: gauntlet. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes sense. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So this isn't that dissimilar later from the Iron Fist. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. That said bringing up
0: the named weapons. We haven't gotten a mm-hmm. lot of that in this series until this book. We've got bad lass and this, which isn't, isn't a razor as we're
1: realizing together. Cause I
0: thought it was too.
1: <laughs> yeah. I totally thought it was a razor. I, yeah. I've read that entirely wrong, mm-hmm. but
0: are there, are there other examples of named weapons? On a personal scale, throughout this story, or is it kind of new to this book?
2: I, I mean, genuinely... obviously, like
0: the twins. Of, what? Are, what's the name of? But those are those are guns. The, the twins. Uh, yep. Those are those are big guns. But like personal, mm-hmm. like swords, having historically having like a a really important sword having a name is not something we've seen a lot of. As far as I can remember in this series.
1: So Selenius's razor was called something, had a name that was stolen in iron gold, had a specific name. I don't remember what it was called, but yeah, I mean, feel like right now, it which makes is why sense I'm kinda, that it had a name. Yeah. So that one had a name. And then I feel like that's it outside of calling them like the person's blade, if that makes sense. I mean Darrow's or the Reaper's sling blade. Right. I guess is the closest I can I can recall off the top of my head. Like they're all they're all given particular designs, but they aren't necessarily named. And so now as such, named blades. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it makes sense. No reason not to be, and but... I, I'm
0: curious if Bad Lass has had that name for the generations that has been in the Telemonas family, or if it's a new moniker.
1: Yeah, great question. I would feel like it would be a... Well, here's the thing. I do remember something. Thraxa has a hammer named Wee Lass. Uh, so I, I, have, I would have the suspicion that her... Razor is named by her in this circumstance, then. Okay. That would make sense.
2: Yeah. I like that. Yeah. But I also it's like really the idea pick.
1: of Cavax wielding bad lass. Could be. I mean, I I absolutely think that's a thing. I honestly, it's like this small layer of detail that like naming swords is kind of cool and kind of kitschy and i'm glad that we finally have it you know what i mean but could would it have been cheesy in like it, book two to have all these like named cheesy. blades and i i you think it,
0: yeah. it will it could still become cheesy if it gets too populous sure yeah but i like the idea of rod. like a couple really notable historic weapons having names
2: yeah
1: yeah, and there's that's not to say that there isn't like a good amount of variety among these things, right? Like Diomedes is wielding like he has a full black razor um that we see at his hip right now. Um Seraphina from the last book before she was blown apart had a fully transparent razor, so it was very dangerous because like you couldn't see where it was necessarily that well. Gaia's was similar, which is why Lysander couldn't tell when I think it was wrapped around him at some point or was around her waist. Yeah, Thrax's bad blast obviously, is silver. So, mm. Darrow's was white. But... yeah. Anyway, I digress. Cool. Glad that we cleared up the Vines of Zeus thing, because I was a little worried there. Um, what'd you make of the, the conversation with uh, Helios and Diomedes, though? The sort of various notes that happen um, about them showing up? I mean, it's it's
0: kind of funny. You know? It's kind of funny that they're... They're insultingly, <laughs> in, in Lysander's mm-hmm. perspective. He, I really like Diomedes as a person and like as a character and as a an upholder of morals. He seems pretty straight. Whether or not I agree with those is irrelevant. I I just I I like his conviction.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really really like. Him, Diamines, as well. I mean, just even sticking with the comparison to his father as sort of an operable man, Romulus, for so long and all the things that he did. He also gets a couple of additional names here, you know, obviously referred to as the Storm Knight previously of the Rib Dominion, or Leggett, or Twin Taker. Which, do you have thoughts? Twin Taker.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't. I feel like I should, but well, any connections we that I have don't. I, I can't oh twin t- like like
1: Bologna no I wouldn't think so okay but maybe that's interesting no I I assume that it had something to do with earth right because we even get a little bit later that Atlas and like they've reclaimed earth fully and so part uh, of me believes that maybe Diomedes was a part of that okay you took down the guns Mm-hmm. okay that would make sense yeah seems to make some sense just curious but twin taker fun fun it's a, you know you never forget about julian every once in a while and i forget that that means that cassius is also a twin I forget about that <laughs> yep all the time all the time <laughs> <sighs> good call thanks thanks for that thanks for that reminder that would make darrow the twin taker though wouldn't it kind of they both could be if if yeah. cassius was actually dead I do love the bit where Diomedes, you know, he Lysander asks Diomedes, "Why did you lie?" And he says, "Cassius fought with honor, but was shown none in return," and so he spares his life, and as long as he promises not to return to the war, and of course, of course, Cassius does because he's going to do the really honorable thing, you know. Uh, Yeah, but yeah, (laughs) Ah, a bunch of men dick measuring their honor. It's great, love it. Honor is. Easy to fluff, I guess is what I was saying. Easy to fluff. All right. Well, that was not the dick <laughs> joke that I thought that we were gonna go with here, but holy shit. Yeah. I'm proud of that one, actually. <laughs> I'm gonna go back to the the quote that he said last week, which is I believe honor <laughs> honor was made to hide behind, I think. But
2: it's
1: mm. a good one. All right. Uh, meanwhile, outside of <laughs> Fluffersville, we're going <gonna> to continue <laughs> to the next bit. So what do you make of Atalantia's planned meeting in Rome and neglecting to invite Lysander? I, I mean, I don't think it's neglect. <laughs> it is pointed and intentional.
0: And Lysander's presence, if not his entire existence, if it's not kept in check, is a direct and uh real threat to her dominion over the society. Um, even though he is at least on the surface, kowtowing to her authority as dictator, people fucking love him. And he has the pedigree that it, that like could bring her like iron grip on this crashing down. And I like she needs basically to keep him at an arm's distance and have a like an ironclad allyship with him in this form of marriage, whenever that comes to be, if that comes to be, to like really solidify her control. So she's playing this game of like keep away at the moment for Lysander. And knows what she's – she knows exactly what she's doing. She knows what he's doing. She knows that this is a, a union of convenience for the both of them and has no sort of disillusionment saying otherwise. But like, she's playing the defensive game against Lysander and he has the authority to keep him in his place right now. But can't let him get too close because that authority will start to slip.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we, I think we see that reinforced by the time we get to the end of this um, section, especially from Lysander's perspective. Because, I mean, even considering where the book ends in Dark Age, you don't expect it to have taken such a hostile turn in eight months. No, not at yeah. all. But then there's Atlas, the Fear Knight. Walking up here to his nephew and his contemporary from the rim in his blue wig <laughs> where he says when in Heliopolis, you know, kind of fluffing it up in a little bit. And after they depart in rapid fashion, we're left with just the fear night set by Analantia to spy on Lysander's books and performance overall. Speaking of performance, fucking TGR's Atlas is outstanding in this. Oh, holy it is terrifying. fuck. I love, it. I love his
0: performance of Atlas. We didn't... We have... This is... I mean, this section
1: is the first that we get of Atlas, right? From TGR? No, he's he is in Dark Age from Darrow's perspective when he orders the men to... Oh. Yeah. yeah, Assault Darrow. Mm Mm-hmm. But this is chilling. Feed his own dick to him. Yeah. This, This is
0: very chilling. The last... Interaction between Lysander and Atlas was when he and Alex, quote unquote, escaped, right? I'm surprised that didn't get brought up here.
1: Yeah, it could be because he doesn't know or at the very least doesn't care to like bring it up. Or the they've had least. interactions since then. Like They could have spoken
0: yeah. off There's page. that. But yeah, I will be haunted by
1: <laughs> Atlas's voice. Oh, for much of the book to come, don't you worry <laughs> he's he's a bad guy he's he's a bad guy. <laughs> the chapter ends, of course, oh, but i do want i do wanna make mention Atlas walks up, right, and both just shortly thereafter, both Helios and Diomedes walk away and are kind of like demanded to because Helios thinks of Atlas as repugnant um you know in, in so many different ways and having lost honor and all these other things what do you what do you make of their reaction and what do you think that says for the tensions between like the core and the rim commanders i
0: think atlas has uh pretty clearly and um even like explicitly talked about this in dark age uh, talking about him doing what needs to be done to end the war as swiftly as possible with as few casualties as possible, despite it marring his honor and nobility. And like, this is the position that he's in. This is the job that he has. And he is executing it in frankly, a masterful way. He is efficient. He is brutal. He is a force to be reckoned with. And it is effective despite not technically adhering to the idea of honor that the golds uphold. And the rim, more than anybody, is a – they they revere that code of honor and – the Rims Olympic Knights, I don't think, would have the same charges that the Fear Knight in the Society has in the core. So, I think it's a it's a difference in structure and tradition, and a deep a deep rooted distaste or disdain for non honorable actions even though it's
1: exactly what he's
0: charged to do.
2: Mm Hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the desire to do whatever needs to be done, like you were saying, especially ending this war as quickly as possible to save the most lives. You know, you understand that perspective at the very least or can. And then at the same time, it's like, well, that's, those are also war crimes though. And that's basically Helios' take on the whole thing. Mm hmm. Um, by and large. So, yeah. I I do want to bring up a little quote that he says here as well. When I, I believe he's asked the question. It's as he's walking away. Yeah. He's, well, he's considering walking away, right? Or he's like just about he's, to. He's or so Lysander like invites like, him. He, he walks away and then turns back and says this halfway gone. Oh, yes. Yeah. He, he departs. But he, so he, he says, Lysander invites him to the gallow, right? He's like, I'm having a gallow to launch the Lightbringer. I'd be honored if he laughs. Don't be silly. I'd kill the mood, <laughs> which is A, true. And mm. then Lysander replies, simply no one wants to come to my parties, kind of like some petulant child. But he then, as you're saying, pats him on the back, smiles good-humoredly in the moment, which is also terrifying in its own right. <laughs> this man has a sense of humor and says... Lysander your parents were dear to me you know that but there are plans in motion that cannot be derailed not even by you tend to mercury relax let the war be won it is no shame to be loved
0: yeah Uh, it's so counter to what I know Atlas to be it feels so unsettling Mm -hmm. but it's not technically like out of character for him. You know, like if we really look at his character, he he loves aspects of the society and aspects of gold culture, and just has a really shitty job, <laughs> but and he's really good
1: at it. And he's really good at it, <laughs> <laughs> and he takes his job very seriously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Who boy? Who boy? The chapter ends with Kyber being set to follow. Atlas here, in the moment, the whisper, and then also with Lysander sharing the news of Darrow's capture to Glorostes, Glorostes
0: seems like the singular person that Lysander doesn't feel the need to be on for, mm-hmm. um, I can only hope this is gonna come to bite him in the ass eventually, but like he he really like this is this is, this is his only friend. <laughs> As far as I can tell, truly, maybe Pytha, maybe, but he still feels like he's in a leader position, leadership position uh, ahead of Pytha. Whereas Glorostes, even though he's commanding, he he drops a certain air and speaks f- in a friendly way to him.
1: Yeah. And it, it is, again, this is, I think, harkening back to the very beginning of this chapter too, where Cicero was like, be kind, be gentle. And it's like, oh, you are kind of listening to your friends and taking the advice seriously. Kind of. Kind at of. Least. But I would agree with you. He, is, he does feel like he doesn't need to be on with Glorostes. I would say to some degree with Rhone as well, although to varying degrees, it's not the same. Glorostes he's truly off with, but Roan he can at least be much more honest with. Yeah. Despite all things.
0: Yeah, it's it's not as formal, but it's not as informal
1: as it is with Glorostes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. With that, we move on to Chapter Eight. Darrow, The Hanging Coliseum. Cassius and Darrow are reunited after a couple days of beatings and good meals, respectively. (laughs) Apollonius challenges Darrow to a duel, but is disappointed as he he dispatches him easily in the fight and doesn't believe it worthy of either of their legacies. His victory, of course, that he is going to be claiming potentially over Darrow, is interrupted by an explosion.
0: This whole chapter showcases a very strange dynamic. And in most other cases, I'd be pretty off-put. And kind of turned off by some distant explosion, distracting the bad guy from letting and and like allowing our hero to escape. But somehow with Apollonius, it feels totally believable and like in character.
1: So I'm yeah. perfectly okay with it. The other side of that is they don't, A, they don't escape in this chapter even really. It's the next one. But on top mm-hmm. of that, like. But this explosion really- happens at the end of this chapter. Yeah right, yeah, right, right, right. It happens at the end of the chapter. The fallout really happens the following chapter. But all told, it's not really just the explosion that leads to the escape. There's a lot more than just like it's true. that exploded. I turn my head away and look, and the guys are running out the back hallway because that's right. not what happens. Right. right, right, right. You know, versus that could be a, it a is. cliche and a lot of other things. It's a lot more than that. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we kick off with a broken Cassius, battered and bruised under the care of the Wrath Legions. And Darrow, having been fed great food, specifically, I think he calls out having roast beef. And Cassius (laughs) is like, roast beef? (laughs) What do you you mean? Like a prized cow being led into a fight with Apollonius. And we find out something odd, I think. And we find out that these greys are very clearly from Mars.
0: I don't know why, but I couldn't. Connect the dots in my first read through on this in either of the uh, like Darrow being fed and Cassius not or the Martians I feel like we we got sort of a hint about Lysander smuggling Martians to Apollonius before, but
1: didn't didn't make the connection. We did get a hint specifically that those ships. Mm -hmm. seem to be probably aren't hauling iron i believe is the line yeah but it didn't connect with my brain my first read through it makes
0: total sense in retrospect obviously but yeah could not
1: i i i I was puzzled by it right away Mm yeah yeah it's absolutely fair. And I mean, they're, they're older legions, right? And of course, there are going to be some holdouts, even from Mars, you know, that that are folks that are loyal to the society as such. And especially greys, of whom likely aren't at home all the time, unless they're, you know, guard greys like we've seen previously. But mm-hmm. yeah, I do want to just reiterate the roast beef. Roast beef? Yeah. Roast beef. I had to suck water from a rusted pipe. And no, that's not a euphemism. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, It's so good. I've missed Cassius's joke so much. Mm, me too. <laughs> but, yeah, there's, there's the reveal, of course, much to Cassius' shock, that has allied himself to the Minotaur before they sing their stadium anthem here. Both moments kind of remarkable in their own right. Did you have any thoughts on the Minotaur's song? I did. Obviously,
0: the Minotaur is musical and quite self-centered, but... All I could think about during the song, like reading through the song, was that I felt like he would find this display to be really tacky. And I'm not sure why he's so amped up about it. <laughs> Unless he wrote it himself, but it doesn't seem like something that he would write.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's something that's been written for him, right? So like, A first off there's the Minotaur Invictus, right, of which reveals mm-hmm. the that the makes very sense. clear connection totally yeah, makes right. sense yeah that one's that one's not the one that you're arguing arguing i just want to make sure that we we mention that of course mm-hmm. but then the the song is clearly in like an old greco-roman style of of sort of poetry of the minotaur the war the forgotten soldier take your glory minotaur forgotten soldier march to war take your homeland minotaur um uh, it's i think it's great i i think that it is True. also self-aggrandizing in the way that <laughs> <laughs> the Minotaur is, right? Like, and I think that he would encourage that. Um, okay, not not request it, but encourage. That's yeah. Okay, he's vain enough. Come on, man, Dude's so vain. It's true. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. And then I just I, I feel
0: like he would have preferred, and it wouldn't have made sense with like a legion performing it. But I, I feel like he would mm-hmm. would have preferred. Like a An orchestral composition to be Written for this
1: instead I mean there likely is one you know That's But You fair. gotta have a for war point. point You know <laughs> Mahler brawler legacy hauler right Yeah yeah good point Yeah so we're on the floor Of the hanging coliseum This ridiculously grandiose The largest coliseum in all of the core um, And We get this moment Where they're down on the ground together And the legions are under Apollonius's command, you know, that he destroyed Earth and Mars. There are all these different things. It doesn't seem like there's going to be any way to get out here. But Apollonius quiets down the men. I just kind of imagine him standing there and looking around and everyone eventually going quiet. And he greets with an ancient children's book verse. From the lamplighter. And just to read it here, he says, Along the black abyss, the bold mortal, long suffering, nigh breaking, fixed his will against fate's course. Sheen mailed near quaking, bent was his neck, fury unslaking, to row, row, row his oars against the world's breaking. Once more, once more he paddled from safe shores, if only to shout, if only to roar, Come death, come oblivion, here yet this mortal strains. And, A, It's really sick. B... The lamplighter is not real. I spent so much goddamn time <laughs> researching and trying to find this this thing because I had no idea and I had never heard of it. And I found like a couple of bits, bits here and there. There was one connected to the Shelleys, of course, which is what I originally thought it was. That was like a child's story. It was not. I read the whole goddamn thing <laughs> and like a poetry collection. I did word searches. I did just about everything I could to basically sit here and confirm no, no, this is not a this is not a book, but the next lines that he does say, where he um talks about Darrow showing up, he says truly, I did not think you would come, but I held on to my meager faith like a Boeotian origo praying to hear the Alala la 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 rolling west from golden Attica, Athens Athens has come, but you are not a city, no, you are an empire. And those are real things. (laughs) So (laughs) by comparison, this is a reference to an Athenian war cry. And Boeotians are effectively the folks from the Boet region of Greece, which is Thebes or thereabouts. Kind of in the middle. If you're thinking about the like swath of land that is Greece, it's kind of in that middle bottom section nearer to the ocean, uh, but not quite oceanside. So obviously Thebes is a... Big, big deal. Origos as well, is military word for the men at the back of the walking line in a military contingent. So you've got, you know, your full rank. And the Orgos would be the one who would hear the cry from behind. So... Gotcha. There you go. <laughs> so
0: that was a lot. Yeah, makes sense. Lots to take in there. Seems to follow, at least in a surface level, and obviously not real a completely fabricated ancient children's story which is kind of amazing to to like try to dissect but it seems like the god's perspective on odysseus's journey if we're going to continue that sort of connective thread kind of but i've got to ask because this seems like the most apt place to ask it so far and i've been curious How does it feel to be back in the position where we're doing this kind of research for these episodes? Like you and I talked a few days ago about this poem specifically, and you were in the middle of researching and trying to find. And you're like, "I "I don't think it's real. I can't find anything that's like directly connected to this." But like the idea of sinking energy into like historical research for a fictional book podcast is kind of unique. And is it fun to be back in it? Or is it like, a, oh my God, this is a slog and I can't believe we come back to this series for you?
1: Uh. No, no, it, it is definitely fun. I feel like that is one of the things that I feel like we add to the discourse and conversation around these books somewhat is providing context where we can and where I recognize it or where you recognize it and ask questions is is sort of one of, I think, the benefits of the show. It's one of the things that I missed the most from covering Mistworn in particular. Greenbone kind of was its own thing because there were so many of us that it never really became a thing because we had so many different opinions mm-hmm. and voices around different topics that, you know, it didn't feel like. We were missing anything, but sometimes in particular with Mistborn, I had this sort of feeling like we were doing a lot more summarizing from time to time than like we really needed to. Not that it wasn't still so good, not that it wasn't so great, but I did in particular miss moments like this. Now, could I have prepped better? beforehand not spend two hours trying to find lamplighter and reading through a bunch of poetry and other things to try to find it yeah i probably could have if we would have had a little bit more time before starting this book series but needless i did not quite have time to do every all of the bits of research that i wanted to but i did get quite a lot done so understandable but to get to the
0: sort of meat of what we're, we're actually talking about i i so appreciate the depth that's added through this poetic, monologue nature of Apollonius. And this is far from the only, but far from the least impressive examples of of
1: really poetic monologues. Yeah. I mean, every every word that comes out of his mouth is just dripping with just it's it's not it's it's poetic whimsy it's this sort of like nonchalant i don't know i uh, nonchalant i'm looking for a good ironic phrase i'm thinking like nonchalant rage or something like that but he like just has this sort of tone about him that is just incredible so
2: i mean it
0: it is charisma in the
1: purest form absolutely yeah and he he even says like at the very end he's like depiliated and dilapidated though you may be, and that is never I mean, heard the term so depilated before. But you know, having had hair removed because he's ah, bald. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's just one of those one of those many things. And like gratitude for granting me this final communion. And you know, there's just all these all these different you know signposts. I don't know. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. But I want to pause. Did you have any other thoughts on the grandiose statements or phrases? Anything else? Nothing in particular. I mean, they
0: they're great. They're all great. Apollonius yeah. in this section is
1: welcomely present. Yeah. It's it's great. It's wonderful to have him back. I mean, in many ways, he was barely there throughout Dark Age. He was really more of an iron gold character. So it's great to kind of have him back and big and in the forefront of, of this story. So mm-hmm. really like that. What do you think of his admonishment at Darrow's hand when Darrow calls Apple a disappointment in his subsequent reaction?
0: It seems like bait on Darrow's part. Like, totally. But Apple were buffs it with a really great rant and honestly his accolades are <laughs> fucking impressive. Yeah, Apple has this like he he is self-centered. He's I don't know if I'd call him narcissistic, but he is truly he recognizes his greatness and is not shy to put them
1: on display put them on blast if you will so Mm -hmm. yeah he's more than willing to not shy away and call them out for what they've done as well because they do share this mutual language of violence right and so it's like well you can't just call me out i'm not gonna just let that happen that's not how this works we speak the same thing. We get a couple more remarks as Apple turns to Cassius for a moment, of which they both recall a moment from their youth, and an old, long-dead name is revived for a brief flash, as we hear carnus before he falls on predicting if Cassius has been training in some new form, listing off one we know and two that we've never heard before. You know, we, we had mentioned earlier, like, Razor's getting names, but and we've always had a Razor Styles get names, so it's cool mm-hmm. to get, like, two additional Styles yeah. between cravat of which is just a general fighting style in addition to a razor form shadowfall Windstrider, bringer of dawn the willow way you know each of these is kind of different forms of razor fight what'd you think yeah first and foremost the back and forth between
0: cassius and apollonius is so much fun for me at least <laughs> mm-hmm. i love Apollonius' ability to draw upon the past and make connections and make them really meaningful like the the idea of cassius following along in the footsteps and just what what did he call it like sucking up the detritus of the night for them whatever it was but um yeah something like that and cassius tries to turn it around and says, oh, they made you pay. But like that's entirely opposite to the point that Apollonius is making in that like it, it it kind of proves his point that like he's not taking charge. He's not taking responsibility. He's not paying for what he's doing. And it culminates in a phrase that I really appreciated. It's simple but 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 powerful and hollow then hollow now hollow ever after it, it's an indictment on cassius's personhood <laughs> and yes people grow and no everything they do does not indicate what they'll do in the future but in this case he's able to make a very clear connection to how he was as an adolescent into how he was as an as an Olympic knight, into what he's doing now, and like it's effortless for him seemingly. So that was fun to to see him really dismantle Cassius, but getting into the forms, new forms are very very intriguing, and just by name alone, I can only assume that Darrow is destined for training in the bringer of dawn form assuming that is like they don't explicitly say it's the form but we know shadowfall is so we can only assume that windstrider and bringer of dawn are as well it feels very morningstar and i i would love for darrow and lysander to face off both using that form because they both named their warship in almost an identical way Mm-hmm. But we'll see.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I love love that idea. As far as like both comparisons go, I hadn't even considered <clears throat> the full ramifications of the hollow then, hollow now, hollow ever after, and the way that that also leads into kind of chapter eleven this week, where they have those very honest conversations, and kind of Cassius offers up himself and like indicts his own decision making that he's had over the years. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. great call. Great call. As far as the fighting stances go, yeah. I mean, I think it's assumed that if we know what Shadowfall is, and I think he says something like some foreign razor form, that some something he like could. that. I can't recall um, bringing with you perhaps some esoteric battle form from the icy depths of the system, Shadowfall, Windstrider, bringer of dawn.
2: <laughs> is mm-hmm. it kind of,
1: you know, has his little hoity-toity little friggin' laugh and bastard man in circumstance bastard man but we love him we do. Um, <laughs> so we we move from the conversation that they have there to the actual fight itself and boy oh boy is it disappointing for our boy Darrow I mean he really is just getting torn to shreds it's clear that he's been trained in the willow way significantly. He may even have some lessons from the mind's eye that he's genuinely been handed over from Lysander. He even seems to have a couple of quotes that Cassius calls him out for being close, but not quite the same. So like he's aware of these different things. There's there's a lot, but this does not go well For Darrow, as Apollonius beats him handily and refers to him as scraps, going from a legacy that he feels like he could be proud of with putting down Darrow to one in which he feels like he will be instead—you know—it won't be hailed as anything because he was inconsequential at this point. He was already broken before. Yeah,
0: it's it's a brutal fucking duel from Darrow's perspective. (laughs) It's depressing. It's demeaning. And, but it's still impressive to hear him, like, to hear Darrow be in awe of his ability to match the speed of, like, obsidian berserkers while not sacrificing the grace of really well trained razor masters. Like, it just. It gives you a tangible understanding of how different this is for him, and how impressive, and what 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 state that Apollonius is in. He is uh, truly a weapon of war that has been sharpened to perfection, and has no match other than Darrow in peak physical uh, condition.
1: Yeah. Yep. And it's bad. It's bad for Darrow. He is literally like blood is weeping out of his chest in sheets in this moment, which is a terrifying image as to how much blood is (laughs) going out in that moment. And he is very clearly broken. He even says a line where he pulls him close. He's like, Reaper, where have you gone? Where is the king of stains that I sought? And then, you know, throws him away. Yeah, he's he's broken. He's lost his step. Darrow, it's not a good spot. Darrow's not a good Razor
0: Fighter. Only the Reaper is. And Reaper is gone. Ooh. I don't think that's Ooh. actually true. I don't think that's the case, but I wanted to say something.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> all of the wounds incurred on the part of the Reaper have impacted up until this point. So. But then, as we mentioned at the very beginning, a bomb goes off, and it wasn't ours because we saw the other bomb get revealed, Dominus Portavello, get revealed in a little cloche, basically, <laughs> earlier. So we know that this is another bomb. Fuck. Fuck, indeed. Fuck, indeed. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. With that, we get to Chapter 9, Darrow Shit Escalates. Immediate. Reaction to that, um, I'm like, all
0: right, all right, cool. It's a bomb. Shit escalates. It's Severo. Severo's
1: here. Severo's doing shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's Goblin <All> right. time. <laughs> I think you had pulled the prediction, but I didn't fully write it down of of Severo not even being here. So I I would, I would like to request. I don't know if drink. I did. I did. I actually guess that you didn't. You you did say that you didn't believe that Severo was actually here.
0: Last I was week. questioning it. I know I was questioning it so I'll drink for it, but I don't
1: think I we didn't make a prediction, but I feel like you made it enough of a stern statement that I should have held you accountable for it and I didn't.
0: I think uh, I, I said something to clarify. On, I I said something along the lines of if Severo was ever here to begin with because yeah. And that, that was because of Darrow's questioning on whether or not this was all a trap. But mm-hmm. how far that trap Suffer. went was a question.
1: So, yeah, totally. But I, yeah. okay, I'll drink for it. It's all yeah. good. Thanks gracias So, with that, we'll get into the summary here. Asmodius, Alcarthia is displeased after the explosion of last chapter rocks the dockyards. Apollonius gets into his purple armor and calls his legion to press back against the attack of the Carthiay from the poles. Dara and Cassius get lost in the press before they're rescued by a snarky little gold with red eyes and a star shell. Hmm. I love
0: the conversation from Asmodius about mm-hmm. looking for an excuse when apple is saying like it wasn't me this is sabotage i i have no intentions of bringing down the docs and it doesn't matter what's plausible or what's real or what's intentional asmodius wants to take whatever opportunity possible to turn on apollonius this is a perfect opportunity this is the perfect window And regardless of how believable it is that Apollonius would be setting off a bomb like this, it doesn't matter because nobody else is here to see it. They're going to take the opportunity to press the advantage and be in the right legally to assume that they've been attacked by Apollonius and take Venus, basically.
1: So, yeah, but yeah, I, it is it is this moment of, of reclamation for Asmodeus. So, we return to Darrow on the floor of the Hanging Coliseum with Cassius thrust down into the bloody sand next to him. And they seem to connect the bite on the cheek of Apollonius with Severo being loose and having contributed to the chaos of the bombing. The chaos of the bombing also leads to Asmodeus calling Apollonius to reclaim the dockyards. And so the battle begins. So, curious, first of all,
0: Mm-hmm. Asmodeus or Asmodius? Uh, I'm I'm just curious, like what you see as the proper pronunciation for it, because Asmodius seems right, but it's not how I would spell it. <laughs> that is Deus in Greek, Latin.
1: I don't know Asmodeus, I'm good with either.
0: I, Asmodius, I know from something else, and I feel like it might be Diablo. Yes, but I feel like
1: that's, that's a Z. It is. Yep. Yep. Yeah.
2: It, it, it Asmodeus is also it doesn't one of the lords of Hell,
1: <laughs> right? Under loose for the Emperor. Hmm. Interesting. I'll think about it more. Okay. Uh, I feel like it. Okay. I think. I think I'm being influenced here, but I think that it's because Brennan Lee Mulligan says Asmodius a lot in In calamity. Oh my god. Calamity. Yep. Thank you. I think that's why. Not to spoil anything, but okay. I'm pretty sure that's a part of my mental sentiment. That makes sense, for sure. So, yeah, either either
0: works, though. I think I'm sure it does. And like, we've we've come across it within this book series several included, being a very notable one, of names that have or could have had s- historical significance. That, in talking to Pierce Brown. Or reading things, or like making other connections, didn't actually have those connections. Like Severo Severus is listed as a brother of uh, Marcus Aurelius, even though like, he doesn't have a brother, but mm-hmm. isn't actually the the origin of that name. That's the only like that's the only answer I've ever gotten from Pierce Brown in in our questioning. So we know several like that. That's just a coincidence somehow. So I think I haven't. It's fun to put a lot of weight into names that are given, but I understand that sometimes
1: it's just a name. Um, yeah, yeah. And I'm not trying to add any weight to the name, but it's like Asmodeus or Asmodius, and it's like sometimes pronunciation is a jerk. So yeah, yeah. that's fair.
0: But. Getting away from the naming convention or naming pronunciations. uh, Somehow, I don't understand how in retrospect, but somehow in my first read through, I had completely missed, like it it completely evaded me the bite mark that was mentioned and what it might have meant. (laughs) And uh, like it feels so fucking obvious, but I just did not make the connection to Severo. In that moment. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I totally get it. That's kind of why I I specifically called it out twice during the last episode as it was described, because I was like, I wonder wonder wonderful key into a bite mark on his face being like a thing. I know I didn't in the moment. Um I was under the impression that Severo was definitely there right away, but I didn't connect the bite mark to his like a confirmation of his appearance by any stretch. But the inspiration that Apple provides his warriors in the moment as well here where he stops and speaks to them as they're setting up and doing everything. I mean, you can see why it makes the pair of Apple and Darrow such excellent foils to each other as far as writing goes and why, you know, Apple sees so much of himself in Darrow and Darrow and Apple in different moments. Um they bleed entirely differently, but they definitively speak the same language. So he says, I promised you the glory of reconquering your homeland. Mars lies through this moment. Go now to your legions. Deny the Carthii every meter of deck in any measure of mercy. Ravage them. Break them. Venus is the planet of love. What is Mars the planet of again? So good. Seriously,
0: dude. It's so fucking good. Um, he is a great counterpoint to Darrow. I, let me put this in front of you and see what you think, because I don't know how to answer this. Let the tables be turned. Mm-hmm. In the exact same scenario, would
1: Darrow let Apollonius go?
2: Well, I don't
1: think that, Darrow doesn't really let, what? wait, what do you mean? Like, not kill him in the
0: not moment? Ki- not just kill him in the moment even though that even though it wasn't a fair fight that he was looking for would he let like would he resolve to let Darrow regain his strength in in captivity and uh, resolve it on
1: more even grounds in a dueling field in the future there's there's an argument that there already did that in the form of what happened during iron gold and before iron gold. Um, but there, there was the but, prospect of Alliance clouding that this no, is I pretty clearly antagonism. The fact that he didn't kill him when he was being put in jail, like the fact that he didn't down the man, which is what everyone else said he should do to begin but, with.
0: But he hoped for a tool. He hoped for a tool in the
1: future. Yeah, if he needed it, which he did. I All all I'm trying to say is that, like, regardless of of even that as a prospect of, like, comparing what they did in the past, I would say that Darrow would not have let him go. He would put him in captivity. He would not kill him, I think, in this moment. He wouldn't decapitate him or anything like that. But I think that he would take him as a captive.
0: That's fair, which is what Apollonius did. It's just that. Yeah the The obsidian that was holding him got murked right
1: yeah i I mean like Darrow, despite all of his absolutely sort of bestial rage and a lot of things, has had trouble in various moments actually killing people, you know, I think to like Roke, for instance, and like he couldn't do it, so that's fair, you know it's a good point, yeah, there's a couple of those, but <clears throat> yeah. As far as that goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love the speech, though. Love the comparisons that are drawn immediately. It's just it's ridiculous. You could imagine Darrow giving a very similar speech. God, yeah. Yeah. So we also finally get the name of the book here that that we've been carrying around as our boys have been dragged down behind the hall of Apollonius' legion. We understand it to be called the Path to the Veil. The Karthii then board the ship, and Apollonius comes to the same conclusion as Zero. Hit them as they're coming through, and my... God, the absolute carnage as they walk through those teardrops that they say are forming. People are turned to mist. Bodies burn. The obsidians get gunned down. One man gets shot straight through the throat. There's another gray who's going for Darrow and he gets chopped to bits. I mean, there's just all of this is just confoundingly violent in an incredible, incredible way. Yeah. Fucking meat straws, man. Mm -hmm. This is
0: what they're talking about when they're talking about meat straws. Path to the Veil is a pretty, like, heartwarming name for the book that we're now, like, pretty deeply ingrained in. But that, like, it it feels like such a flash of good in such bad, (laughs) you know? Yeah, right, for sure.
1: Well, this this is more Darrow revealing it to us, too. This is not something that is revealed through any other means than Darrow finally, like, recognizing the name and giving us the name. Which speaks, again, to the sort of unreliable narrator of it all that this book series does have, of course. Just as a a reminder that this whole time we've been reading this book and he's kind of been denying the name to us as he's maybe been denying it to himself. So, and of course, that would come, you know, the, like, seemingly... In at potential end of his life, <laughs> he, he remembers, calls the name and thinks about it. True. So the pair of Darrow and Cassius managed to break free of Vorkian and the other obsidian, despite Cassius knocking himself out while headbutting <laughs> Apple's right hand commander trying to distract her. Darrow gets a, a knife under her armpit, forcing her back but they charge their way out behind a golden Aegeus that they pick up off of the ground. Bad lass also taken back from Forkian and get caught in oppressive bodies of greys trying to escape trapped between the door and the carnage behind them. And who boy, ripe moment of adrenaline when I was reading through it again. Um, But then the door does suddenly open and a star shell comes through sweeping away and killing many greys as it lowers its rail gun and howls. (sighs)
0: Starshells are unfair, I think. <laughs> Starshells are pretty fucking unfair <laughs> against mm-hmm. infantry. Like, I, I feel like this would be covered under the Geneva Convention.
1: But there isn't one of those. <laughs> there was. I mean, yeah, sure. On I don't one, think the on society of republic signed off. Yeah, yeah. The quote here that I want to read from this. The railgun in its left arm lowers as does the giant pulse fist in its right and from its cockpit amplified by its external speakers comes a blood curdling howl. Both of my eardrums rattle as it opens fire directly above us. I shimmy out from under the mech to see the pilot through the canopy. Under a birds nest of hair the demonic bearded face black with grease screams in the stuttered light of the star shell's deluge. Severo.
0: This this is what you get. From a lifetime of wanking off in the bushes. <laughs> for for whatever reason, I cannot in any way reconcile my image of Severo, which is, like, we've talked about it quite a bit. I feel like, especially, like, within this series, like, I, I'm very, very, very bad at visualizing. Like, I, I don't have a very visual memory. But for whatever reason, like... My image of Severo does not mesh with an unkept head of hair or a beard in any sort of way. Like, it just doesn't jive with it. It doesn't work. So, it was kind of tough for me to to visualize this.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can I can imagine. I was trying to find a photo. I'll definitely track it down. Palace Illustrations, of whom previously had deleted a lot of work from a bunch of different sites, came back with the newest book and released a bunch more character drawings and art artistry moments and specifically did this moment of Sebro and it definitely looks a lot different, especially considering, you know, you do usually think of him as sort of the the hatchet face, right? And we've we've talked about that previously, but in particular, I agree with you. It's hard to imagine him as shaved, thin, scrawny, you know, very different than the sort of shorter built man that you imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I can totally agree with you here. But when I saw that, when I saw that image, I went, oh, that's exactly, that's exactly it. Looking forward to seeing that. Yeah. I'll find it here in a minute and send it to you. But And then the damn escape. We get... Uh, Some of the story about Severo through Darrow's assumptions with all the trap wires uh, that we have in the vents as they crawl through them. They make their way to a a garden that is within this area, blast out the windows, and float through space to land in the Bay of the Archimedes. There's a sweet moment exchanged uh, silently as brothers with their foreheads together after a long separation since Iron Gold as the Archie takes off.
0: I do love the comment about the peace in the gardens being as jarring as the battle below. It's, it's kind of brutal. (laughs) Like it's, but it immediately draws me to red rising and that discordant, unexpected peace that Eo and Darrow find in the gardens, obviously a very different scenario, but, for whatever reason like that's it. the idea of a an unexpected garden drew me back to the beginning of the first book which was really fucking cool <laughs>
1: Felt really, good. yeah that is kind of a neat thing that I hadn't thought about like the idea of that stillness of the garden and comparing that to the one that was just above the mines that they snuck out and saw mm-hmm. great point
0: yeah I don't think they needed to but I'm kind of surprised that Darrow didn't Think about that In this moment I mean he's a little Preoccupied <laughs> Yeah Fair Good
1: point With everything else That's going on But He's kind of Fucking dying <laughs> Yeah there, there is that too He's not having a good time Lots of Darrow dying In the series in general Not a whole True. lot of Darrow dead You know Right Alright With that, we Darrow into. Yes Yeah Right I, <laughs> That's why I said Not a whole lot of Darrow dead Like there's there's a there's a moment or two, but mm-hmm. cool. All right. With that, we get into Chapter 10, Lysander Iron Fist. So the Lightbringer successfully lifts off. All the while, Tharsis is successfully put down by a fully horrifying, legally empowered fear knight.
0: Successfully is totally an understatement. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in both cases, it's kind of they're they're kind of understatements with lysander it, it just feels like we go from like chapter to chapter accomplishment taken out at the fucking knees accomplishment taken out at the fucking knees and even even though you know i don't i don't agree with his positions of course or anything like that um it is he is so compelling as a person of whom pushes through like every adversity to like get done what he needs to get done Even if he does sometimes seem oblivious to to a lot of other things like we've mentioned previously. But I don't know what it is, but there's something kind of magical about Lysander dismounting a literal Pegasus that gets me amped up in this chapter. I mean, obviously, it's on the cover of the book as well. And the Pegasus Legion is also Darrow's. So there's something funny about him riding a Pegasus to the very top of the old ship that was his. But it just feels right to him, especially as he is prepared to help present his and the Votum's grand work here. There's a comment, too, about the front being incredibly heavy, which is interesting.
2: Yeah,
0: there is that comment. If you hadn't brought it up, I was going to. (laughs) Yeah. What the fuck do they have in the front of that hull? So either they have something very dangerous or the entirety of the hull is super reinforced for ramming speed. And using the Lightbringer as a blunt force object would be
1: really fucking fun
2: <laughs> yeah
1: it would be the most darrow thing for Lysander to do you know yeah. what i mean like that would be a way to be like hey i stole your shit and i turned it into a weapon and here I'm i did pull you better move. than you yeah 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 exactly it does, it does have that sort of feeling to it, for sure. Um, for sure. I'm not going to lie. When I was reading through it the first time, and I'm not going to spoil anything here, but I, inside of our own Discord again, a part of the Patreon, I immediately predicted what, that Patreon? this was going to be used to ram. What? Hmm? Where, would, join the, where would
0: one go to join the Patreon?
1: Oh, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. Oh, that's interesting. What?
0: That's all right. Whoa. Sorry. Continue. Cool
1: no but, but i just really appreciated i i really i really liked this and latched into it being like lysander is going to drive this into a fucking moon he's going to turn the moon breaker into a literal moon breaker somewhere i that was, see it happening that was my prediction yeah mm-hmm. so totally get it but yeah i mean lysander so the the whole meeting that's happening and i do want to say this because i think that you you ask a little bit of a clarifying question a little bit later here. But this whole meeting that's happening is on top of the Lightbringer. So this is on the very top of its hull as it lifts off and otherwise. So they're all just right on top of this ship in the moment.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Um, I, I was curious. The, the clarifying question you're referring to, I'll just kind of put it out there because it's been answered, is where they're standing. Because they're talking about the scale of the thing and like... Where would the majority of this party be in order to fully grasp and understand the the liftoff? And would it be several kilometers away in order to see an eight kilometer wide giant fucking ship lifting off the ground and being on top of it makes total sense?
1: Yeah, it absolutely does. And that that's the only way that it makes sense. And ultimately... Lysander steps up and begins his grand speech for Mercury proclaiming in front of a large crowd the glory of reclaiming this artifact and artifice of Dara's legacy of rebellion and rechristens it the Lightbringer as this sort of big moment. They all smash their glasses on the ship's surface and the ship, ship lifts into the air. Notably, they throw their glasses down kind of underneath them to, to have the glass room sort of slide, slide off. <clears throat> I believe everyone else has grab boots on, which he remarks upon at different times and moments. Um, no.
0: I don't think they do. I think but... I think just the Tharsis clan has grav boots. Everybody else has more elegant means of transportation that they've been afforded, but Tharsis's crew brashly mm-hmm. comes up with grav boots.
1: Yeah, yeah, and many many other folks are in ivory skiffs. So they're in like some floating craft. Not everyone is on the ship, but. Mm-hmm. They do all, they all ultimately are going to be on the ship after it lifts off, just in case right. something catastrophic happens, of course. But okay. because like the dance floor is there on the ship and everything else. So,
0: right. There's also the spilling of blood as a superstitious warding of bad omens in a rechristening. I can't remember who is all involved in that, but I think it's Lysander and uh lady that starts with an h what's her name horatia horatia yeah so the
1: votums and lysander
0: and it's it's as a part of the christening right basically Mm
1: -hmm. yeah rechristening to ward off bad luck so the the three of them do that in the moment and the lightbringer rises it takes off as it as it turns on and works so yeah. Like something the size of a fucking town.
0: Just mm-hmm. kind of floating in the air. <laughs> kind of hanging out. Just like, hey, what just else? Just
2: hanging out. Like it's there's more like impressive
0: to see that in like uh, near the surface of a planet than it is to see it in space. <laughs> because Oh yeah. There's something pulling it down that it's opposing in this scenario.
1: Mm-hmm. That it's actively pushing against. Yeah, totally agree. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. He now has the old Roke ship. He has the old Darrow ship, and he's made it his own. What was the name of it uh, before Morningstar? Do they mention the name of it here? I feel like I they did. don't remember. Do you? Do you think you remember? No. I just feel like Hang there was on a one name. Second. You're not wrong. There definitely was. Was it the Invictus? Colossus. The Colossus. Yep. It was also originally commissioned as a gift for Lysander. Gotcha. For the record.
2: Well, he got it.
1: He did get it in the end. Yeah. Yep. Woo. So yeah, Colossus to Morningstar to Lightbringer. So here we are. Now we're here. So we continued. We kind of circle around with a couple of different guests in these different moments. We hear Valeria and her brothers laughing kind of in the distance, that them being the Carthy eyes. And we also meet up with Pallasel Greca, of whom is the Bologna sort of stand-in that we, we kind of saw a little bit of previously with Cicero, just a brief flash as Tharsis ran off to, to flirt with her <laughs> in a previous chapter. But she's she's got a metal taloned eagle on her shoulder, and she and Lysander share a conversation about House Bolona being completely unwilling to cross the dictator under any circumstances until given evidence of guts being provided. So he's done, he's checked off so many of the other boxes, but they can't turn, they won't turn, unless he proves that he has the guts to actually do something.
0: The eagle, being a war eagle specifically, is a pretty ominous, not quite a threat, but you could kind of see it as a threat. But its presence does not go unchecked by Lysander. What do you, like, I, I can't think of what guts might be required to pull Julia Bologna on board. She, I'm sure, still isn't eating at all until Darrow's heart is presented to her because eating nothing for 10 years is sustainable and usable. surviving on spite is a thing that she can do. So, but I, I don't and know if anyone can. I'm curious what he's going to come up with to present to Julia as proof of the presence of guts
1: yeah i think it's going to be a difficult thing to prove because like what th- that's almost intangible by comparison to totally all these other intangible. tangible things
0: yeah it's guessing it's guesswork totally to mm-hmm. be like what does she consider good enough
2: yeah guts absolutely enough.
1: guts guts so roan calls and gives notice to lysander about the goings-on on the venus on Venus at the dockyards. And there's a little line about how anyone with a telescope can see it. So it's very clearly open. Everyone is aware of what's going on. And the situation at the dinner here on top of the ship turns sour quickly as Tharsis is suddenly at risk with open war between the families. Lysander is quick to intercept Valeria Alcarthii and offer again to her her inheritance if she's willing to stand down.
0: I can't say I'm particularly feeling bad for tharsis but just imagine this situation where you are drunkenly partying all fucking day Mm -hmm. laughing at the silly kids ambitions assuming that this like warship will never fly and then your brother on a different planet (laughs) <laughs> seemingly sets off a nuclear warhead and you are as a result de facto in rebellion against nearly every single person you've been act like you've been laughing at or with all fucking day that's not a good
1: situation to be in <laughs> <laughs> it's not good for anyone involved not at all my any stretch yeah, but is it fair? Yeah, it,
0: like it doesn't seem
1: fair. If
0: I'm really I mean, trying Thars- to like remove myself from the situation, Tharsis does not seem like he's being fairly punished for this atomic going off.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, especially when we get to the the end result of what's going to happen here, but you can understand that it's it's family, right? So like they'll hold Tharsis hostage basically. In my in my estimation what I imagine happening is Tharsis is, one is captured. Thing. Yeah, well, I, I understand <laughs> not to the part that actually happens, but Valeria, at the very least, would be more than willing, I think, to like hold him hostage basically as like a give us back our legacy sort of thing, because mm-hmm. he is also rubbing their face in it. Like, that's the other side of this, too. Like, he's not completely inculpable. He is aware of what he has and what he's doing and therefore is just braggadocious as all hell.
0: But he doesn't so. know what's going on because he, he's being braggadocious about something that's not accurate. What do you mean? Not I mean,
1: Apollonius didn't set off this fucking bomb. Oh no, I mean he's being braggadocious about owning the the docks, oh, right? That's fair, and kind of holding yep. that over the Carthage eye. Yeah, yeah. No, yep. he's not being braggadocious about the bomb at all. Yeah, he doesn't know. So to your point, he's just being braggadocious, you know, more generally. So, yeah. Whew. So after handling Valyria and and sort of the, the pair there on his own, Lysander then is told or is informed of radar signals that indicate that the fear night is coming. And man, in this moment, I knew that something was about to go terribly fucking wrong. So the Gorgons descend from above the sky, basically pushing Tharsis and his friends down, in which they realize that they've been caught in a trap as they're quickly pushed back up through the clouds into the Gorgons by fear himself. With Tharsis' friends being beaten to death in midair. I
0: mean, specifically, falling like crows mm-hmm. is such a great description. Like, all of the, this whole scene has beautiful descriptions by Pierce Brown here. And the, this is a great example of enhancement of those descriptions by Tim Gerard Reynolds. And this, like, as a result, it becomes this scene that I can only hope gets directly, explicitly adapted in whatever form of adaptation we've got coming for us. Like, I, I, I so badly want to see just Gorgons falling from the sky like crows. And brutally
1: efficiently beating people to death before they hit the ground yeah i mean talk about nightmarish right like Mm -hmm. just taking them and just beating the hell out of them watching the bodies go limp as these friends that have just been drinking and you know making fun of people and mocking people are quickly and swiftly brought to their end yeah by fear no less Oh, and then fear and the moment that we have with Tharsis here, mother of fucking God, this man, this terrifying visage of a baby headed Medusa in white moth white grey moth garb flying after Tharsis out Valley Wrath as he tears him asunder piece by piece, his hands and feet, his arms broken by the iron fist, before he's dropped into onto the hull like a wriggling worm before having a metal bowl wrapped around his head and thrown into a manticore cage holy fucking shit if
0: for whatever reason someone slipped through the cracks and didn't get brutalized in this scenario this is a fucking message but I don't think it's meant to be one I think fear knows entirely that he got Everybody connected to. (laughs) I think this is a message no
1: matter which way you look
0: at it. Right. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a (laughs) it's a signal post of what could be if you ever crossed the dictator. But it's not as direct of a message as it presents itself to be towards sympathizers of the wrath family, because I don't think there are any as as closely connected here as there could have been but
1: it's just a really fucking terrible way to kill somebody (laughs) yeah it is it is horrifying as he's just kind of i i like i remember being shocked and i was like okay he's gonna take off his hands his hands and feet we're gonna like break his arms and whatever put him through a ton of torture and then bring him back to atalantia and like use that as leverage against apple and then Nope, he's, he walks over to a table, pours out a bowl of fruit, grabs it, bends it around his head, and then throws him into a cage. Jesus. I mean, wow. Yep. just, <sighs> Dude, if fear didn't have your your respect before, I think it's impossible for you to not understand the depths to which the man will go to achieve his cause. Yeah. Now. Yeah. So Atlas ensures that Lysander knows that he is requested in New Sparta and must attend. Lysander is trapped and before where he wasn't invited, he must now attend. And even, you know, thinking about the conversation that he had with Atlas last, even earlier in this day, was like, just rule quietly. But it's very clear that now the cards have changed. Everything's potentially changed. And now Atlas is just following orders. So Plans are quickly made as his alliance is to hold together and provide for Apple as he needs help in this moment. Glorostes is to be hidden and says a lovely line here to kind of not quite close out the section, but near the end here. He says, before you, I was broken, lost. Hope had fled with youth. He thumps my chest. Hope bears here in you.
0: Yeah. This is an example of like this is a a luxury afforded to Lysander based on his connection to Atlas and his, his previous relationship, because I don't think Atlas was supposed to give him two minutes to put his affairs in order. So this is like as close to bending of the rules as we've seen from Atlas in Lysander's favor. That comment from Glorostes is touching. And beyond that, in this conversational two minute sort of hurricane, they land on contingency 11, which says that they've had they have at least 11 contingency plans and re- reasonably a lot more than that. So this is truly a prepared, cautious, well-equipped grandson of Octavia that we're dealing with. And uh, he's he's Well aware of the politics that might be coming down the pipe.
1: Yep. I mean, yeah, I just he is clearly incredibly prepared, incredibly intelligent and does have that loon in him. We'll say (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we we know that he learned uh, from from his grandma and also in his studying um, with Virginia and the like and idolizing her as well. This does feel very feels akin with both of them. And absolutely makes sense. So, True. of course, he has these plans. But it's it's great that he he's calling for something steadfast and isn't just bending to the will in the moment. But it seems that even Atalanta in the end kind of knows that that'll be the way that it goes. So then he goes to Atlas the easy way and he's to be repaired, the scar on his face healed for presentation's sake to maybe remove that sort of sympathetic story and angle that he's sharing about Darrow and the burn and surviving and things like that. But before that, she has a message for him. And Atlas turns to his Gorgons in that moment and says, make him shit blood. And oh my God, the Gorgons just, I mean, we don't, we don't obviously see it depicted, but we know what the Gorgons are capable of. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm pretty, pretty stoked that this is not the engagement situation that I find myself in right now. Oh, homie should break off the wedding. I think. <laughs>
1: Right now, right now, yeah. right now, I don't know, I don't know immediately Lysander. I don't,
0: I don't know if it works like that for him. Yeah. But he should. Totally. That's,
1: that's no way to live your life, man. And that's how his part ends. You know what I mean? Like his part <laughs> ends with him getting the shit kicked out of him. It does. Yeah. You could argue that both of them are, that everyone's at a very low point kind of at the end of this, at the end of this week. Nobody's but, in a high point, except maybe yeah, Atlas. no one's. Yeah, except for Atlas, and maybe Apollonia seems to be happy. I don't know. He's always excited to go to war, so he might be in his own mental high point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: fair. Yeah. With that, we'll go to our final chapter of the week, Chapter 11. This is Darrow Inheritance. So I didn't write a summary necessarily for this one because there is just so much to go through, and I want to spend the time to kind of pick our way through it a little bit. So I didn't want to summarize and kind of hit hit some of those points because there is just... Kind of a a good amount to this chapter, but it focuses predominantly on the relationships um, between Darrow, Cassius, and Severo, as well as giving us a little bit more information on Ore and her background as a daughter of Ares, as well as introducing us to the daughter of Ares, and a note from uh, Athena and as such, Fitchner. Now, PJ, I have to demand that before we read next, you do have to read Sons of Ares 3. Can do. I did say before part two that was the one thing. So you do have to read it at the very least. It's, we will chat about it probably nearer to the end of the month, but it's right there. You got to read it. I will read it tomorrow. Cool. All right. So I don't know if a lot of folks know what Pierce might be referring to every time he mentions anything in relation to the ecliptic, whatever the ecliptic guard, the ecliptic, ecliptic planes of of different planets and whatnot. Or, or the circle, as he refers to it here. But that's generally just referring to the path an object takes around the sun and sort of the plane in which it lies in relation to the sun. So by avoiding the ecliptic plane, they're able to largely dodge likely other ships. So, yeah. Because the easiest way is going to be wherever those rotational forces are, so, which is going to be in relation to the plane.
0: Really, really good point and good thing to call out. I don't know if it's the same in this... Universe or in in this story where uh there are more than a singular planet that uh life is inhabited on, um, but typically the capitalized ecliptic plane is the plane in which the earth's orbit around the sun is contained, and most. Most planetary bodies are very, very close to that ecliptic plane. They're they're not identical. They're not perfect. But there's the Earth's plane in orbit and most of the planet's planes of orbit are are very similar. So um, it would make sense that if you oppose that – or it it would make sense that most defensive strategies would – exist upon that plane because most the most efficient means of travel will be upon that plane as well so technically you could uncapitalize ecliptic plane and apply that term to any orbiting object but Mm -hmm. in general it's referring to earth's orbit around the sun
1: got it okay I mean that that totally makes sense to me, and I was glad that you added that layer of clarification. I think, in the way that it is used over the course of this series, it generally does refer to more than just the and because, like you were saying, relatively most of the plane. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it is often used to refer to them all as sharing a plane or being very close to sharing a it's, plane. It's, it's so really it might be close. more of yeah. yeah. So it might be more of like as opposed to. If you imagine the ecliptic plane is something that's flat, we then instead extract it to 3D and give it a, a distance, basically. That's like an ecliptic zone, you know, mm-hmm. where it you have the Z the and Y. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. So that's kind of how I imagine it. For the record as well, for people wondering, for a little bit of science on this too... When you're considering the ecliptic plane, it does not line up with our equator because we are actually at a tilt. So there's the celestial equator, which is not even with the Earth's center. So it's off-center based on position. That's what gives us seasons. So that's why seasons note. change.
0: Because of the yeah. 23.2 degree tilt of our
1: 23 equator. 23.4. 23.4. So close. That was close. That was close. Yeah. I would take twenty three two, but I literally have a diagram up right here that says twenty three four. So, all right. <laughs> it's been
0: I I graduated with my physics degree in twenty sixteen, so it's been I didn't know that seven off years. the top of my
1: head. For the record, it was on the diagram that I was staring at <laughs> to okay. make it easier to explain. <laughs> so, I did not know that you you could have yeah you could have fooled me before that. So. <laughs> But yeah, so those those kind of things play in. So the ecliptic guard is the guard that I believe is patrolling around Earth typically. Okay. And that plane for Octavia in the original trilogy. So gotcha. I don't know if we ever explained that, but I think we just kind of went with it and didn't didn't talk about it. So I feel like that was Makes worth it, worth its segue. Totally worth it. So it's a small thing, but Severo's note on the ham, absolutely hysterical. <clears throat> Man has probably been eating rats for weeks uh, and judging by a larder bites ham. Lovely, lovely little fun joke. The necklace of years, though. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's just disgusting. disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you make of Severo's stories from his time on the dockyards and on Luna? Severo is broken in
0: in a lot of different ways. He's conflicted. He's angry for a lot of reasons, including some really deep-rooted anger towards Darrow personally. He's just completed a literal one-man war against a supervillain. <laughs> <laughs> very true very true and like he he's just saved the person that literally killed his father like he he has been beaten and broken for such a long time and to go through all of this like morally conflicting and like just just heart-wrenching decision making that he's had to go through in the last 10 minutes is upsetting and impossible and to be on top of that one step closer to peace and salvation and family makes emotions really hard to wrangle Uh, so i can totally get him being uh, hard to read and twisted and uncertain in this scenario
1: right i mean naturally he's he's dealt with Just massive, massive problems over and over and over again. So it absolutely tracks. Yeah, he's he's had a tough time by every account. (sighs) Misery, misery, man. And I I think what's so tough about it, too, is that like we really haven't gotten a whole lot of time with Sevro since Iron Gold. We we get like a little flash in the pan moment with from Virginia's perspective in Dark Age, but that's really it. Like he gets that one chapter where he's kind of creeping around before he is ultimately stolen by the syndicate. So yeah, he's. Yeah.
0: I didn't realize it's been that long since we've really had Severo's
1: presence. Same with mean Cassius. Boy. I mean, we thought he was dead, though. To be fair, true. Was <laughs> that Iron least. Gold also? Iron gold as well. Yep. Wow. Damn. Yeah. Right. Dark age was pretty bleak, huh? It was pretty brutal. Although I will say I've agreed with a take that's, that's risen in our discord among patrons and particularly championed by Amy that dark age is probably the darkest book, but it is also potentially the funniest book in the series. Like it has so much comedy from moment to moment that, it, it also should be ranked as a very funny book in addition to a very dark book.
0: It's hard to compete with, like, all of the little comical moments in the Institute within Red Rising, though. Like, there, there are oh, sure, so many sure. really, really funny moments in that. And they're,
1: they're yeah. not meaningful in a way that's, like... And everything's just a little less serious, you know? Like, yeah. There's, there's something playful about that first book, too. Yeah, but you're also dealing with children.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So like, like, naturally it's going to be a little bit funnier. So yeah, I can understand where that argument comes from. But I, 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 if I would rank the comedy within the series, I'd put Red Rising first.
1: I think I would probably put Dark Age number two. I think I would probably agree with you. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and this is without placing anything on Lightbringer because obviously we haven't completed it yet and I'm not going to. Mm-hmm rank it when you don't know it all so naturally yeah cassius and severo's relationship definitely feels strained of course it has been a very very long time since they've talked to each other more than more than a decade by all accounts so yeah and uh,
0: was their last interaction cassius killing Fitchner? no 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 it wasn't but it was there wasn't much after that. There was the moments on the Morning Star, but
1: there's not a lot. Yeah, no. They haven't really interacted. There was just the moment on the Morning Star pretty much entirely. And then like the send-off effectively, um at the very end of Morningstar, where Cassius takes Lysander and leaves, and Sever almost kills him. But that's about it. Mm-hmm. This section also uses liberal use of the word meat straw. Um, and I just had to bring it up because it comes up like three times in one page or yeah. two pages. But and... it's,
0: it's talking about something that they've defined. And...
1: No, Yeah, yeah. right. I, I, I'm i not saying necessarily that that's wrong, just that no. or like incorrect. I just think that it's overly used in a short span. I have no problem with its usage on the whole, and I think it is well-defined. But I think that it, I as a writer get into a rhythm of like using the same words you can hear in my speech patterns. I'll say things like gambit repeatedly for months on end. And like, just you get latched into certain words and certain patterns. And in the same way when you're writing that happens. So for me, this feels like it's a, yeah, interesting. This feels like a, a patterned sort of thing that wasn't edited out or edited down in some way. That's fair. Like he can remember the tunnel and then talk about it as a meat straw out loud, you know? Yeah. It, it, it was a novel it's term. It's a very minor gripe. As far as I understand, it was a novel term coined in iron gold? or
2: Yeah, I think so. What?
1: I think it was first used in iron gold. I think
0: so. And people seem to latch onto it. Yeah. And I can understand using a term that you coined that people
1: latched onto in the way that, like, it would make sense. But again, I have no problem with using the term because no, I, people latch on to it and yeah. it makes sense. I have a problem with it being used three times in two pages. Yeah. It loses impact. Yeah. Right. If, if the whole point, like, the reason that meat carpet is so ridiculous as a phrase is because it is that one time and it's impactful. Um, meat straw also very impactful, very thoughtful, but it does kind of take a little bit out of it to... To use it so frequently, yeah you know, yeah, it's like a it good become, swear word. It, it becomes
0: it. a military, like tactical term, as opposed
1: to right. a off-the-wall shock value description. Description, description. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. So Severo feels really broken by this war, and you can really and fully understand that's the why he left. Has only been solidified over time since Iron Gold, right? Especially as re- he recounts all the cockroaches that they've let slipped over the years, and and like he recounts very coldly the death of Minmin Min and like the burning of the Howlers and the Iron Wolf, his time with the Abomination. You know, there are all of these different things that are that are compounding on him. But then he mentions that Victro will have had the kid, and my heart breaks in a moment of dramatic irony that makes me want to eat my keyboard and cry at the same time. Like you oh, just. Man. You just know that that's going to hurt so badly when he finds out. Yeah, it, that hurts so much. <laughs> it really fucking hurts.
0: All of it does. Yeah. Everything, like, it, Severo's being spiteful and, and malicious in talking about Min Min's smell as she burned in the Iron Wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, which Darrow doesn't even know about, right? Like, he doesn't understand the term Iron Wolf. No, oh, yeah. So I, I don't like, think he has any idea. I... Several is, in Darrow's perspective, fucking babbling, mm-hmm. and getting into conversations about smelling their friends burning to death, and borrowing from earlier in the book, from the from the first section, like he doesn't even blink hearing about the deaths. As far as I can tell, like he, he, it doesn't phase him,
1: but I can't imagine it is painless, you know? No, it's definitely not. He's just kind of numb to it all at this point as he's I, I don't know if he's numb to it all and trying to prove that to himself necessarily or if he's trying to just kind of brush it off nonchalantly because he doesn't want to dig into it, you know, mm-hmm. desperately in need of therapy, desperate, desperate need. <laughs> yeah. Darrow makes a very sincere attempt at an apology here that I really appreciate on his part and and thinks about it more than just saying, I'm sorry, which is something that he did repeatedly in iron gold and, and was like basically apologizing and Darrow and several comes back and is like, you don't mean it. But in this moment, he takes a moment, internalizes and understands that this is, this is more painful than that. And so he, apologizes for everything that has happened. And Severo's response, man is also heart wrenching and painful in its own way where Severo responds, but man, we ain't good Not yeah. now. These words aren't going to fix that. Yeah. We may never be good. I think is
0: what he says after that. And like it's, it stabs me <laughs> in the heart, but it makes total sense. And mm-hmm. I applaud Severo for being so like refreshingly open about for this, and it, like not that he's never been open, he has been. But telling something like this to Darrow lately hasn't happened, you know, especially from a howler, especially from one of the yeah. one of the originals, right.
1: Yeah, I mean, outside of Screwface, kind of, saying that, like, there's just two of us. That doesn't make a howler that makes, like, a lonely pair. Yeah. You can you can kind of see them as mirrors in that way, too, between Severo and Screw. Right. Wearing the pain very differently. So to follow that, Ore comes in with a message from Athena a leader of the daughter of Ares, but accompanying that we get Fitchner. And it's this reminder really that Sevro has the weight of legacy in this rebellion more than anyone else does. I mean, within argument, this entire rebellion exists because of Fitchner and Bryn and the entirety of the sons of Ares comics. Of which, if you haven't read them, absolutely... Ne- they, in my head, they're must-reads. I think that especially to understand Severo as a character and Fitchner as a character and the, like, why Darrow gets this shot and then why Darrow is the best candidate, you have to read them. But, yeah. I mean, this just... It places that firmly on his shoulders. Yeah, I wasn't prepared for a recording of Fitchner in this moment. Yeah.
2: It's such a, I mean, such a huge
0: I reveal.
1: Yeah. It is, it is a huge reveal, I mean, between the combination of this additional sect and the Daughters of Ares, but also this inheritance and this ask for Sever to pick up the helm of war.
0: Yeah. I. It's been long enough, and mm-hmm. I would have thought that any faction of the original Sons of Ares would have made themselves known by now and would have joined forces with the sons of Ares even before the Republic was officially like formed. So to learn that there was a new faction <laughs> or to to learn that
1: there was another faction, totally, totally caught me off guard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it definitely caught me off guard too, but at the same time, it makes sense. And like the sort of response that we get on the half of the conversation about Darrow and his place and all of this for having sold them out, I think is also important where it says that that's kind of why Sebros being offered, offered the chance because they know that like now is the time. If ever the highs are united, the lows should be too. And that, that mm-hmm. ultimately clicks, I think for me as well. Yeah. It makes sense. We, we also get a little bit here within the, the Fitchner conversation of which is all so good. And I could probably take an entire episode or an entire hour talking just about the moment of that conversation, but i don't think i want to do that until maybe we're done with soa 3 just to kind of talk about that whole story in in conjunction with with this moment but it's i it's just so great but in particular we get the explanation of where the book came from that this is brins family's generational book from rim reds and this is sort of a, a knowledge base of of the rim over time and that this is a family heirloom that's been passed down. So the book that Darrow has is Bryn's, Bryn's book. And that just kind of, kind of melts my heart a little bit.
0: It does. I don't know why. It does. At the same time, it it's completely changes. also like Bryn more changes. than EO, so. Well,
1: yeah, fair.
2: Totally.
0: <laughs> but, but it does completely change this book from... And and, I mean, the the difference is time and the difference is disconnection from the present. But like seeing something as ancient philosophy and then learning like, oh, my friend's mom contributed to this in some sort of way. It doesn't cheapen it, but it changes the way that you think about it. Or at least it, it would change the way that I would think about it. It's not as ancient, so it doesn't feel as heavy in my mind for
1: some reason. Sure. I, I can definitely understand that. I think that it, it is like a collection of oral wisdom in particular, and it's not something mm. that she contributed to, to be clear. It is it Mister. is just a book that contains it that she had. So it's it's from the clan on Triton. And we know that the clans have been on these various planets for 780 years at the very least. So that's when we really kind of have the the timeline, so like this is by and like even the lamplighter that we were talking about, even if it is completely fictional, which it appears to be, it's still a seven hundred eighty year old sorry or somewhere in that range it can to be considered ancient. I would say this text is probably a couple hundred years old, maybe just a hundred, even and we'll say it's a generation old that's still massive for reds right. that's three generations of reds, true at good least point. good point, yeah. Which is which is a lot of time for them. And I, I think on the other side of that, too, there's something to be said about this being a book from Reds that now Darrow is picking up and reconnecting with his Red side through, you know? Mm-hmm. Beyond just the philosophy aspect of it, this is, this is part of who he is. Elsewhere, sure, but still. Foundationally, it's a part of both of them. Right. So we get the eighth understanding here as well as part of this whole thing the eighth understanding is we achieve perfection first by acknowledging our failures we increase understanding first by recognizing our ignorance and then he apologizes to ore for his part in selling out the sons of the rim and ore says something that we've been thinking about ourselves for a long time i know you're not the reaper you're just a wanderer trying to be what he thinks other others need him to be i forgave you a long time ago
0: this was a needed touching exchange um Mm -hmm. it's good to have a tangible example of somebody who's been touched by the controversial actions of darrow and has forgiven him like that yeah feels very very good
1: harmed even you know yeah by all accounts actively hurt by it Mm -hmm. personally hurt by it and it also does does any of this, for what it's worth, while we're talking about Ore as well, does any of this dissuade you from your skepticism with Ore? It does. Do you still think that she's a cryptea, or do you think that she's a daughter? OK,
0: no. It. it yeah, it, it, I believe the presentation that's been set before me.
1: Got it. Yeah. I I totally agree with you. I think that this was for me a breaking moment in which I went, well there's no way. And I was I was already skeptical of the idea of it being oray to begin with. But I was skeptical skeptical of how skeptical everyone else was of her, right? Like if if you if we're going to see a betrayal on Pierce Brown's part, he's going to be less a little less less secret. obvious. Yeah. Yeah. So we get a small moment with our other two boys. The first with Severo as he tries to understand and determine if this will be a trap out in the rim if they decide to head off before crying himself to sleep, listening to Darrow reading The Path to the Veil. Vale.
0: This is so much of an emotional beating for Sarah, for Severo, like the, this, this section, uh, both good mm-hmm. and bad, and uh, that almost makes it worse somehow to have that conflicting, like positive and negative emotional beatings that he's taking. And like I, I really can't help but be proud of him for letting himself sob in the fetal position and uh allowing Darrow to read to him until he's
1: falling asleep. Yeah. I mean, he's just such a broken boy. And like he just wants to go home to his family and he just has all of this all of these other responsibilities and he's already tried stepping away once. And now he's like, what do I do again? Do I, I want to go see my, my son. And we know obviously that that will eventually end in absolute tragedy, but still you can't, you can't blame the man for wanting to be with his family.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, no, not at all. But so does Darrow genuinely. And he didn't make those decisions. So like that, that's the one to one comparison to make. Yeah. Is who broke under what pressure. Right. For for what reason?
1: Yeah. I just sent for a goodest boy. I just want to give him a little dog treat and like <laughs> pat him on the head. Yeah. And be like, hey, dude, do you want to go run around the yard? And be like, yeah. And be like, okay. Here's your knives. Have fun. <laughs> Here's Tickler. Speaking of named weapons. That's true. Good point. Haha, we got one. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> we then move to Cassius and get an exchange of advice back and forth between the two and Cassius. I think he gives one of the best speeches in the entire series for Darrow specifically. Like Darrow often doesn't get sat down, someone putting his hand like hands on the shoulders being like, "Hey, dude, listen to me for a second as he talks about who Darrow fundamentally is in in these moments. And I, I really appreciated that. But I also really, it's, it's impossible to not just want to quote this entire section, but I do want to read the little fun bit that he says here as well. I was used as a bus driver for a spy I'm in love with, who I thought rescued me because she thought I was a hero, whose protege chose to become a tyrant and shoot my best friend's protege in the head, whom I found out was the paragon of honor. No, I'm doing fine. <laughs> Somehow yeah. rattling that
0: off, it was honestly easier for me to follow it in Tim Gerard Reynolds' voice than it was for me to read it on the page. I don't know why, but like I, I, I followed Cassius' patter better through TGR than through my own inner monologue.
1: I I think that that's one of the hard things about writing in general, to me at the very least, is coming through with what is otherwise like a, a speech and like giving someone's patter, like you're saying, is difficult to mimic. So like when I wrote and coached speeches back for high schoolers, speech and debate, we would put in commas wherever they needed to like take a break. Or, like, would remove them intentionally where they may belong so they knew to, like, go into the next thing or add dashes between words so they had an understanding of what the pace felt like. But that can be really strange to read sometimes, Mm -hmm. which lends itself better to a verbal interpretation, which is why, yeah, TGRs work so well.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. That makes total sense. Like, you recently, like, two days ago, I think, got an email from me talking about information on my wedding and i write in a way that overuses commas a lot so kaylin and i were going through and like deleting commas before we actually send it out but i'm sure i still overused it but like i i write i feel like in a very conversational way in that like my commas dictate breaks in like speech even though they're not Technically, grammatically necessary. So,
2: yeah,
1: absolutely. That totally makes sense to me. I didn't know that you sent me an email.
2: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I just. (laughs)
1: Well, you've got a bunch of information on my
0: wedding in your Gmail account. I, th-
1: I did just see it. I popped it open my Gmail just to double check. But yeah, I mean, I totally get it. And I write with a lot of commas as though I'm speaking. But then when writing, writing, I have to be very cognizant of what I'm actually, because you want to save yourself on edits, you know? Mm. So that's the That's the other side. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, enjoy that email from me.
2: <laughs> yeah, I
1: will enjoy that email a little bit later. Very cool. Very great. So then we get to Darrow's turn in the questioning. And Darrow asks that Cassius stop hiding from Severo as he killed his father 12 some years ago. And we've got to get over this as a as a group together. And that Severo in many ways is over it already, but he needs to stop hiding. And in addition to that, he says, you got to stop hiding with this. You got to be the courageous guy and pulls away his whiskey from underneath his seat from him, which I'm going to say is a drink. Cheers. If you have any bed left, <laughs> there's a bit of a swallow left. That's cool, but it quickly f- flips around though back to Darrow and them needing to practice. Otherwise, he is going to be easily bested by Diomedes. There's like a little punch on the shoulder or no, not a punch on the shoulder, but like a little bit of a harsh critique calling him Cassius Bologna. And he says, ow, and he says, not in the Republic. And he goes, not that ow, ow, harsh critique. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a great first who's on first kind of kind of joke. But so we,
0: we've yeah. talked about it but i feel like this is the first active sort of recognition that in 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 verbal means that the republic has changed the sort of naming convention um especially of the golds and maybe maybe there was a dissertation on it during iron gold but uh or during dark age I, I'm, not, I'm not sure which I don't think there was a
1: dissertation on it or anything like that. It was just sort of there, right? So, like, Alexander Arcos, not Alexander Al Arcos. Like, everyone's name had removed all of those.
0: Right. But this is the first time it's, like, specifically actively mentioned. Yeah. As far as I can recall. Right.
1: Yeah. For some reason, this stands out in my head, but for some reason, I feel like an iron gold, it's Callaway g Char. It was. You know, because they get XI or whatever. Yeah. That's the one that stands out in my head as not being corrected, but that's the only one that I can think of off the top of my dome.
0: Well, even like Lyria's Liam. Lyria, Lycos, Yeah. Well, Liam Lirio. calls him, calls Warlock by his like full name.
1: Yes. Callaway G-Char. And that might be what I'm thinking of. They might have gotten rid of it. And And what that could be is it could be the, just the lower colors having not adapted yet, right? Because they don't have the... Access to infrastructure versus like the high end top military. Or like
0: all of their understanding of what's going on is during the war where that hasn't actively been altered yet. Like it's a long time for people to really change in general in anything.
1: Yeah, totally agreed. I need to adjust that way people don't make fun of me forever. Lyria of Logalos or oh, Logalos, not Lycos. Please stop sending hate mail. No immediately
2: thank you okay
1: gamma gamma bastard gamma yeah (laughs) there's also another joke that punctuates this which is he he mentions of course this training and he's like if you say one word about the gala i will turn this ship around
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean you knew it was gonna come if if he didn't say that (laughs)
1: Yeah. But right. that's his one
0: like, reaction to any sort of comment about their fighting prowess
1: against each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the gala between the two of them. It's so it's so good, it's so great. Hmm. And so we end part 1 with a path to rebuild Darrow, Cassius and Severo each. The brothers are back. Kind As of boys Maybe? are
0: back in town. Sort of. Kind of. <laughs> For, for now to
1: ten- tenuously yeah tenuously for sure how how do you feel about part 1 we're at the end here how do you feel about part 1 ah oh, man it it feels
0: like a very good continuation of the story that we've been it, it just feels good man it it feels polished I'm really happy with it. And like the, the the name of it circus is applicable in so many ways um from both perspectives that we've been exposed to. And I don't know. I I am just just excited
1: to continue from here. Well, the good news is is you're going to get to. We do have one prediction to pay off, but I'm just going to save that for the beginning of next week and we'll we'll throw that in there regarding Tharsis. But we'll we'll just throw that in next week since I know you're out of Bev. And the whole point of that is to drink a little bit on the front of the episode as part of the bet. So Right. But next week, we will begin part two and we will read chapters 12 through 17. 12 through 17. Last
0: week, I got 12 through over right crosslands. He, he fucked up and said 12. So when you heard you me, me say me. 11, that was me.
1: Uh, that was, that was Honestly, me, reading that through was 12 talking, would have been fine. Crossing, talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure it would have. 12 but. would have been fine, but I wanted to keep the parts clean, which we do throughout this book. Uh, so, mm-hmm. all the part breaks are clean breaks. So, that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you as always
0: to Tim and Andrew for keeping the show existing and accessible. Check out all the links in the show notes where you can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, and our social media accounts. All in one very nice, easy, convenient location.
1: We also want to take a second today to thank our new mixologist, Moser. We're so excited to have you, Amigo. It was great to meet you at HowlerCon, and I'm glad to have you as a patron. Fun right, fact, Moe. We you at HowlerCon. Mo's the first one to approach for a signature. From me and I freaked out a little bit. So I was not prepared. <laughs> it's so it's yeah. so
0: weird, man. Like I can't mm-hmm. I can't fathom that. But very cool. Very
1: cool. Very cool. All right. With that, if you're looking for us on any of the social medias, for the most part, it's Words Whiskey Pod. If you're looking to send us an email, Words and Whiskey Show, gmail.com, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. And you have to leave us a five star review or else PJ will take a bowl over your head and crimp it around your neck before throwing you in with his puppies of whom will probably just like lick your feet. But they'll be you fine. Know. You'll be OK. Yeah. Five star right. review
0: but it'll still be intimidating because they have very loud barks five star
1: review only. <laughs> all right with that we'll see you next week bye, bye.